0: Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 15 for our study this morning. Second Samuel chapter 15. I was a little confused when I got up this morning. I wasn't sure if it was uh, May 15th or February 15th. So I got a little teaser on Thursday and Friday that could actually possibly be spring and then We bounce back into the cloudy weather. But God's good nonetheless, amen? Amen. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. We come with grateful hearts, grateful that we're your children, grateful that you have forgiven us of sin. And as we look at the betrayal that David experienced, we pray that you'd bring healing into our lives at times that we've experienced betrayal. Pray that you'd help us to not be a person like Absalom, not to be a person who betrays those that we love. So we invite you into this time. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Betrayal. Betrayal. It's possibly the worst kind of pain that you can go through in life. Some that have experienced a betrayal said that they would have rather experienced a death Sometimes a betrayal in a relationship, they say it may have been easier actually to experience a death than a betrayal. Maybe it's a suicide, suicide of of a loved one. A lot of times that feels like the ultimate betrayal when they choose to commit suicide. Understand that there's a struggle there, but the betrayal takes place. A divorce, adultery, the ultimate betrayal that can take place. A good friend, a brother or sister in Christ that you traveled with together together, in life, sometimes there's a a betrayal. Maybe it's a business partner, someone that you walked through in business for a long time, and you trusted them. You never thought that they would stab you in the back, but then they had the opportunity, and they took advantage of it. They betrayed you. Maybe someone who was a mentor, a pastor, a spiritual leader in your life that invested in you, and you trusted them, and then over turn of events, they, they betrayed you. If you haven't experienced betrayal, you will. It's it's a part of the human experience, uh, unfortunately. You're like, that's a lot of good news. I'm glad I came to church this morning. Most of you have already experienced betrayal. As we study this with David and Absalom, I think it gives us some really good indicators of where to go when we experience betrayal. You may remember the story. You're flowing along with what's taking place. Absalom had killed his brother then went into hiding. David never dealt with this. He never confronted Absalom for his sin. Over time, over a five-year period, David just goes for the false reconciliation. That's where chapter 14 ends. They just kiss and make up. They embrace and make up, but no issues are discussed. No issues are resolved. The bitterness stays in Absalom's heart towards his dad. Now ultimate treason takes place. As we go through this text, we're also going to look at the betrayal that Christ experienced from Judas. We're going to contrast how David's betrayal also points to the betrayal that Christ experienced. But this is my hope and my prayer, is that God would begin to bring healing in our lives. That God would begin to move us forward. That we wouldn't stay in that place of bitterness if we've experienced betrayal. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. After what? After this false reconciliation with his dad. He's back in Jerusalem. He has this fake restoration with his dad. Now he's very intentional upon his actions as he gets some nice chariots. He's got a nice ride. He pimps out his ride, you know? And then what does he do? He's got 50 guys that run before him. For what purpose? to draw attention unto himself. That, that, that's his primary purpose. You couldn't miss it. As you're in Jerusalem, here comes Absalom because he's got 50 dudes running before him. It doesn't even make a lot of sense. Here you've got your chariots and your horses that can go faster than somebody running, but then you've got 50 men everywhere he went that would run before him. What a terrible job, huh? What do, you, what do you do every day? Well, I run before Absalom. Wherever he goes, then, then I run before him. But it shows that Absalom's rolling in pride. Now that's really the MO that he is now operating in. In verse 2, Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such In such a tribe of Israel, in the ancient cities, the gate was very important. The gate going into the city, there would be a sitting area. It's where the elders, the judges, the leaders would sit at the gate. If you had a problem, if you had a lawsuit, if you had a disagreement, you would bring it to the elders that were right there. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. Absalom he rise early in the morning, and he strategically placed himself by the gate to look for disgruntled people. Now, we need to examine our hearts to make sure we're not like Absalom. We're not someone who brings about division. We're not someone who commits treason against those that we love. But also, you need to be able to spot an Absalom in the workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood. And someone who has a heart to bring division, they're always going to look for disgruntled people. They're just waiting for that conversation around the coffee pot, around the water cooler, at work, Oh, you don't like the boss? I don't like the boss either. Yeah, oh, so-and-so doesn't like their job. So-and-so made a mistake. And that's what Absalom was doing. He was feeding off of this. In verse three, then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Remember the physical description of Absalom in chapter 14? The Bible says that he was handsome from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head. That's quite a compliment. Even his big toe was attractive. His nose was attractive. His eyebrows were attractive. His hair was long. It was so long that he wouldn't cut it for a year. When he did cut it, he would weigh it. Yeah, I weighed my hair. So you can picture tall, dark, and handsome Absalom standing by the gate, you know, doing his hair thing. And he's like, oh, you've got a good case. You've got a good disagreement but it's unfortunate my dad does not have anybody that has the time to hear you. There's no deputy that can even begin to hear your complaint. Moreover, Absalom would say, oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who had any suit or cause would come to me that I would give him justice. Nice little seed planted there. Absalom knows where he's going. He's going to dethrone his dad. He wants the kingdom for himself, and he's planting these seeds of doubt in people's hearts and mind. Now, come on. There's a little bit of Absalom in all of us. There's a little bit of Absalom that says, you know, if I were in charge, things would be different around here. You might find yourself saying that, and I can tell you it's a lot harder to be in that position of leadership than you may think. You know, if you've ever been in that process where you've worked underneath somebody, and then over time God has allowed you to be the boss, your perspective is probably different after you've received that responsibility than before you had it. It's easy to be in the bleachers, isn't it? It's easy to see all the things wrong that a a boss may do. And if our heart gets to that place and our mouth begins to speak, hey, if I were the boss, things would be different around here, it's not a good place to be. Because it's one thing for God to give you the responsibility, to God to lift you up in your company, to give you responsibility, and it's another to take it by manipulation. It's another to take it by division like Absalom is doing. Be faithful. Do your work unto God. Serve Him. You're not serving men. You're serving God. And allow God to to raise you up. Support the boss that God has given you in His strengths and in His weakness. As long as they're not asking you to do something that's unbiblical or immoral, You might see a better path, but you're going to serve them. Don't be an Absalom. So when you hear somebody talking like this as well, it should cause red flags. Don't gravitate towards it. Don't take the bait. You know, they're they're not a person of character if they're saying, if I were only the boss, I would change things around here. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. He's very charismatic, he's very friendly, he's very charming. This is the cultural greeting, a kiss on the cheek. But here's Absalom, someone comes, he just grabs him, gives him a big hug, kisses him on the cheek. It's so good to see you. Man, you really have a good disagreement. Everybody that I've seen that's caused division in a family, in a workplace, in a neighborhood, in a church, they've always been very charismatic. They've always been very friendly and endearing, but they're endearing people to themselves for the purpose of getting their own agenda. Does that make sense? So he's not being friendly and charismatic because he cares about people. He wants to use people. So we go on and we see in verse six, in this manner Absalom acted toward all men who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. People go for it. He's handsome. He's popular. He listens to me. And Absalom is effective at stealing their hearts. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. 40 years 40 years has to refer to 40 years since David was anointed as king. It's not 40 years that Absalom's been working about this division, but 40 years since David had initially been anointed as king. So here comes Absalom, and he says, I want to go to Hebron and pay my vow to God, because when I was in Gesher, which is the place that he was hiding after he murdered, murdered his brother Ammon, so I made a commitment to God that if I ever got to come back to Jerusalem, that I would go back to Hebron and pay this vow. He's lying through his teeth. This is hogwash. It has nothing to do with the Lord. What's he going to do when he gets to Hebron? He's going to declare himself as king. This is a plan that he has. Why does he choose Hebron? Because Hebron is the place that used to be the capital of Israel before David moved it to Jerusalem. So there would be people in Hebron that would feel like, oh man, I wish that we were still the capital of Israel. Verse 9, And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is in Hebron. The trumpet's blown. The spies are placed throughout the land. The declaration is made. Absalom reigns in and Hebron. He's the new king. A few things to take notes, if you're taking notes this morning or thinking this through with me, As now we contrast David with Jesus, and both experience a brutal betrayal. That's the first thing to note. Both Jesus and David experience a brutal betrayal. Think about what this must have been like for David. This is his son. This is brutal if anybody does this to you, but this is his own son, this morning we sang in worship from a baby's first cry. Why is that the lyric in the worship song? Because it's memorable. If you're a parent, you remember your baby's first cry as they came into the world, as breath came, came into their lungs. That cry is a sign that they're healthy, a baby's first cry. David heard the first cry of Absalom, watched Absalom take his first step, Learn how to talk, threw the football around together. This is his own son and the pain that must have come to David's heart because of this. How about for Jesus, his betrayal? It was Judas, Judas Iscariot, who was his disciple. Of all the people in humanity, only 12 got to be the disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus hand-selected them. He hand-picked them. Judas was one of those. Jesus was trusted to the point where he got to keep the money. People were moved by Christ's ministry. They gave And Judas was the overseer of the money. We know that he was stealing out of the money that was given. All of the things that Jesus and Judas shared together. The meals, the miracles, the late nights, the early mornings. He was there at the feeding of the 5,000. As the storm on the Sea of Galilee was calm, as Peter walked upon the water. And now he's betraying Christ. The only way that betrayal can be betrayal is it has to be someone that you love. It has to be someone that you're connected to. Someone that you care about. Because otherwise, you don't care. You're not concerned about it. Yeah, they stabbed me in the back, but they weren't part of my inner circle. To love is to run that risk of betrayal. And what I want you to see this morning is there's a reason that Jesus experienced betrayal. There's a reason that David experienced betrayal. Why did Jesus allow for Judas to betray him? What's the purpose in that? It's not a happen chance. Because Jesus would know that we would experience betrayal. Maybe you have been b- betrayed by a spouse. You've been betrayed by a child. You've been betrayed by a parent. You've been betrayed by a close friend, a close coworker. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, that can really get us stuck in our soul. And when we experience betrayal, we have the opportunity to fellowship with Christ and his sufferings. It's really hard to know how Jesus felt when Judas betrayed him until you have been betrayed as well. So both Jesus and Judas experience a brutal betrayal. In verse 11, and with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem, and they went along innocently and didn't know anything. So they went to Hebron thinking they were going to have a great worship service. Absalom was going to pay his vow to the Lord. All of a sudden now, Absalom is declaring himself to be king. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, for gil, from gil while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew stronger, for the people with Absalom continued to increase in number. This is David's inside man. Ahithophel, as you study the life of David, was his key counselor. When David was fighting battle, when he was making decisions, he would go to Ahithophel. Ahithophel would provide that important counsel that would make David strong, and here Ahithophel now goes with Absalom, and the movement of treason gains some traction the end of verse 12 tells us people begin to increase and they start coming to Absalom in great numbers. Verse 13, now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. The hearts of the men of Israel with Absalom. That's the key factor because it's the heart that really matters. So their heart's been touched by Absalom. Their heart's been moved by Absalom and they're committed to Absalom. It worked. It will work. Absalom's schemes of division, they're effective. You promote yourself, you be friendly, you you say, You know, I'm really concerned with your problems, and people, unfortunately, will, will follow that. And he was effective in bringing people around himself. So David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make the haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Second thing to write down is both Jesus and David placed other people's needs before their own. This really strikes me in verse 14. David says, look, we're not going to be able to defeat Absalom here. If we stay here, there's going to be people in Jerusalem that are innocent, that die by the edge of the sword. I don't know about you but when you've experienced the deep pain of betrayal the number one thing that we tend to do is be selfish we've been hurt we've been hurt in a way that we would have never anticipated and so the natural response is i'm going to take care of myself i'm never going to be hurt like this again but what does david do his initial response he's just heard that his son has committed treason that there's some real credibility to this movement, he starts to care about other people's needs. He starts to declare, look, I don't want people to die here in Jerusalem. Jesus, when he was crucified upon the cross in a powerful way, in his moment of crisis and pain, he's caring for other people's needs. As he's pinned to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He doesn't say, Father, get them, for they know exactly what they do. He's not spewing hateful words against Judas. That Judas, he's betrayed me, and now it's led to my arrest and my crucifixion. He sees his mom, Mary. And remember the pain that he's going through, the suffering that he's going through, the difficulty of being able to speak. He sees John, his disciple, and mom, and he says, woman, Behold your son. Son, behold your your mother. And he linked John and Mary up. He wanted to make sure that his mom was cared for because he was dying. But Mary was going to continue living. That's incredible. He was thinking about other people's needs. Two thieves being crucified next to him, one mocking, the other asking for forgiveness. Jesus doesn't go, Hey, don't you see I'm dying for the sins of the world here? Don't you see that the father's punishing me for everyone's sin? He turns and cares for this thief. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. If you've been betrayed and you're in that prison of betrayal, it's so important first to relate to Jesus, to fellowship with Jesus, and then make the conscious decision of the will, not based on your feelings, to say, I'm going to start putting other people's needs before myself. It's key. It's really important. Because if we stay in a place of selfishness, it's going to be a downward spiral, isn't it? It's going to lead to more and more suffering, more and more depression, more and more self-pity. If we really open our eyes, there's a lot of needs around us. Even here this morning, there's a lot of people that are hurting. As we go through our day, there'll be people that are hurting, needs to, to be cared for. Verse 15, And the king's servants said to the king, We are your servants ready to do whatever my Lord the king commands. In the midst of this crisis, David is going to find those who are really loyal to him. And that's true in the Valley of Betrayal. You'll find who your friends are. And these servants say, we're ready to do whatever you command. Then the king went out with all of his household after him, but the king left 10 women concubines to keep the house. And these 10 women are going to be important characters as the story goes forward. They're left in Jerusalem. They're left to, to keep the palace. And the king went out with all of the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all of his servants passed before him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and the Gidites, 600 men who had followed him from Gath passed before the king. So you do find people loyal to David. You find his servants, you find people from these foreigners, these outside people groups, that they're committed to David as well. But you also find the 600 men who followed him from Gath. Who are those guys? First Samuel 22 tells us men gathered to David who were in debt, who were in distress and discontent. Sounds a lot like us, doesn't it? So out of that broken condition, they come to David. As they walked with David, followed David, they were changed and transformed. It's many years later, and they're still committed to David. The end of 2 Samuel is going to end with listing some of these men's great attributes, their their exploits. So these 600 men are still loyal to David. Verse 19, you guys still with me? Then the king said to Etai the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king, for you're a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go and I know not where, return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. The Gittai, a foreigner, only been in Jerusalem one day. says, "You, you go back with your king. I don't even know where I'm going. Notice Etai's response. But Etai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also you will be. So David said to Etai, Go and cross over. Then Etai the Gittite and all his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. This is really interesting to me because... You would think that Etai wouldn't have anything invested with David and the Gittites. That they would take David as an instruction and they would return home at this moment of crisis. But they say, we're with you. Wherever you go, we're going to go. In life or death, we're loyal to you. We're committed to you. Then you have David's own son who's betraying him. And a lot of times in life, the people that end up being loyal to you are not the ones that you would expect. It's It's Etai. It's the person you met yesterday. There's really no logical reason that they would walk through a valley of betrayal with you. But then it's someone who's really close to you that you would never expect that would betray you who brings that greatest source of pain. God will oftentimes bring an Etai in a valley of betrayal. He'll bring somebody alongside that says, you know, I'm just going to walk with you through this. I realize you're going through a great pain, a great loss, a great hurt from a loved one, I'm going to come alongside of you, and I'm going to walk with you. In verse 23, And the country wept with a loud voice, and all of the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all of the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. David's leaving Jerusalem, and he goes through the valley of Kidron. Another thing to consider is both Jesus and David went through the Kidron. I want you to try to picture this in your mind. Maybe you've seen some pictures of Jerusalem today and what we think ancient Jerusalem looked like. But you have today the Dome of the Rock, which sits where the temple used to be built. It's called the Temple Mount. You guys seen pictures of the Dome of the Rock? Picture that in, in your mind. You can Google it right now if you've got your, got your phone or your, your device but it sits on the highest part of of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is very hilly, similar to San Francisco. It's got a lot of of hills. And so here sits the Temple Mount. And just below the Temple Mount is we have the Palace of David. And archeologists have excavated this. You can walk through uh, these ruins and, and it sits here. And around his palace and around the ancient city would be a wall. And just below this wall in the palace is the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was the place that they would throw their waste, their, their dump. It's also the name Kidron in the Hebrew means dark. When the temple is built and the temple is completed and there would be sacrifices, the plumbing off of the Temple Mount would come into the Kidron Valley. The stream would flow dark from the blood of the lambs of the Passover. So you can picture David with this entourage of people that are broken, and he's coming through the Kidron Valley. Also, Jesus walks through this Kidron Valley. When you get through the Kidron Valley, then you come to the Garden of Gethsemane, where there's olive trees. And then just above the the Garden of Gethsemane, you walk up a hill, which is the Mount of Olives. So hold your place here and turn to John 18, Verse one. John chapter eighteen, verse one. Let's look at Jesus, how he walked through this same Kidron in a time of of betrayal. John eighteen, verse one. So John fourteen through seventeen is what we refer to as the upper room. Jesus celebrates the Last Supper with the disciples shares the message with him. They sing a hymn, they sing a song, they get up and they walk through the Kidron Valley in verse 18. When Jesus had spoken the words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus walks through the Kidron Valley during the time of Passover, where blood is flowing through this valley, pointing to how he's going to be the lamb that was sacrificed to go to the Garden of Gethsemane to meet his betrayer, Judas. Now we've got a choice to make as we study Second Samuel 15. We go, is it just coincidence that David walked through the same valley when he was being portrayed? Our God, in his infinite wisdom, was he ultimately pointing to what Christ would go through. When Christ rose from the dead, he's walking on the road of Emmaus with a couple of his disciples. They don't realize they're walking with Christ. And Jesus takes them through the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, all the places in the Old Testament where he says, it speaks of me. Now that's a Bible study I wish I could hear, don't you? We don't start reading about Jesus in Matthew chapter one. Jesus is throughout the pages of the Old Testament. I believe that this is pointing to Jesus Christ. We have a king betrayed that's ultimately pointing to the king of kings, the greater than David, Jesus Christ, who's betrayed as well. I think it's important that it's a valley. Betrayal brings us into a valley. It brings us into a dark valley, doesn't it? Jesus is in a dark valley. David's in a dark valley. So let's go back to 2 Samuel. David crosses the book Kidron in verse 24, There was Zadok also and all the Levites with him bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God and Abathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. Verse 26, but if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am. Let him do the same as he seems good to him. The priests are coming with the Ark of the Covenant. You may be saying, well, what's the Ark? What's the Ark of the Covenant? It's this piece of furniture that represented the presence of God. The temple isn't built yet. Solomon's going to build it. It was an important piece of furniture for the children of Israel. So they're bringing the Ark of God out with David. And David says, no, I want you to take that back into Jerusalem. Then he expresses something very important. He says, if God wants me to see the ark again, I will. But if I've done something wrong, and this is the end of me, and that's what seems good to God, then so be it. David remembers what Nathan the prophet spoke to him after his adultery with Bathsheba, and says, David, you're going to experience difficulty in your family. There's going to be violence inside of your family. David knows that he's contributed to this problem that he's experiencing with his son. So another thing to consider in betrayal is both David and Jesus trust the father. David's trusting the father. He's trusting God. He's saying, God, I never thought I'd be in this place. I never thought that my son would do this to me, but I trust you. If he takes the throne, I trust you. If I never see Jerusalem again, I trust you. And in order to work through betrayal, and see God bring about healing in our lives, we have to trust God. We have to trust that he allowed this pain in our lives. If Jesus suffered at the hands of Judas, if Jesus died upon the cross in such a horrific way, there's going to be times where God gives us the gift of pain. And that gift of pain in betrayal gives us an opportunity to know Jesus in a greater way. And oftentimes, in a betrayal of an intimate, personal relationship in our lives, it's going to alter the course of our lives. Things are going to be different. Things aren't going to be the same. You don't know if the relationship's going to be reconciled or not, if it's going to be healed or not. And ultimately, you got to surrender it to the Lord. God, this business partner stabbed me in the back, and I had a huge financial loss. I put that in your hands. I trust you. This family member, I trust you. This friend, God, I trust you. And to me, the actions of David and the actions of Jesus are incredible as they were experiencing betrayal. Again, Christ upon the cross, what did he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the ultimate declaration of trust. Father, I trust you. We can make that our prayer today as well. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we go on and we look in verse 27. Then the king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer or a prophet? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abathar. So he sends Zadok and his two sons back. See, I wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and they remained there. Saying, guys, go back to Jerusalem and you can bring me news of what's taking place. Verse 30, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot, and all of the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. Can you picture this? As you hear me describe this, of the palace of David coming out of the ancient walls through the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, you may think this is a long walk. You may think that this is a couple hour walk. In actuality, you could do it in a half hour easy. It's not a long distance at all. When you see all of these pictures of the Temple Mount and the Dome of Rock, they're taken from the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is hugely significant. So both David— and Jesus were on the Mount of Olives. Outside of Mount of Calvary, I don't think there's any more significant place in the scripture. Why? Jesus taught from the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, towards the end of his life. It's called the Olivet Discourse, talking about end times. When Jesus ascended back up into heaven after his resurrection, he was where? The Mount of Olives. The angel comes to the disciples and says, Guys, why are you staring up into the sky? In the same way that he ascended, he will descend right here. The promise of the book of Acts is Jesus is going to return physically on the Mount of Olives. Let's just camp out there. So here's David. He's got his head covered. He's weeping. He's absolutely broken, but he's in the exact location that Jesus Christ is going to return. Write this down. Zechariah 14. It's one of the most incredible prophecies in all of scripture. It says that Jesus is going to come back on the Mount of Olives. He's going to plant right there, and there's going to be an earthquake. The Mount of Olives is going to split, and living water is going to begin to flow. And I study Second Samuel 15, knowing what Christ has done and will do on Mount of Olives, and I go, oh, this, this is significant. This is significant. They were both on the Mount of Olives. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is the double betrayal. The betrayal of Absalom, but also the betrayal of his key counselor, his friend. He knows the damage that Ahithophel can do, and he says, God, would you turn the counsel into foolishness? As you're walking through betrayal, turn it over to the Lord. God, I know what they're saying in the neighborhood about me. I turn that over to you. I know what they're saying in the family. I know what they're saying in the church. I know what they're saying in the workplace. God, I turn that over to you. Don't enter into the battlefield with them, but turn it over into the power of prayer. I think verse 32 is the most important verse in the chapter. Now, it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshiped God. He comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, barefoot, his head's covered, he's weeping, and he chooses to worship. Isn't that incredible? Now, guys, do you think that he felt like worshiping? As his son has betrayed him, his very existence is in danger, son's trying to kill him. Do you think the first thing that came to his heart and mind is like, oh, God is good. (laughs) Praise the Lord. God is good. Absolutely not. The reason that David worships is because worship was his lifestyle. Worship was a part of what he did every day. So when he comes to that point of crisis, it's natural for him to worship. How was Job able to respond, the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord, because he was a worshiper. And we have to understand that we worship based on who God is, not our circumstances. I think a lot of times in our culture, worship is based on our feelings, and worship is based on if we like the experience or not. So we come into church, and we're kind of evaluating first how we're feeling about the day, if we've had enough coffee or not, and that's a real issue for me. And then we come in and we go, you know, I don't really like the band today or the music's a little too loud, or it's a little too, too quiet, or we go, you know what? They played my favorite song. This is my favorite worship song. I love this worship leader. I'm into it. I'm there, right? And I'm, I'm worshiping the Lord. But the truth is, as we respond in worship to God, not whether we like the worship band or not, not whether we got enough coffee or not, not whether it's a sunny day or a cloudy day, but we go, God, you're good. I understand that you're good, that you are my father, and I'm choosing to worship you in the midst of the pain. Do you think the weeping stopped for David? The weeping didn't stop. He worshiped God in the midst of the pain. Last Sunday, I took the Sunday off and was really blessed that Andrew could teach. He did a great job, and we celebrated Mother's Day uh, together with, with Amber, my wife, and over all these years, uh, she's I've always been working on Mother's Day and you know, it's been not much of a celebration for her. So we went out to Westcliff and had some time together out in the mountains. And Sunday at four, we went to the cowboy church. Never been to a cowboy church before. And I loved it. It was really fun. But I got to tell you, worship was completely different. It was absolutely different. And I got a confession to make. I do not like country music. <laughs> country music is the worst music on the planet. It absolutely is. However, I loved worship at the Cowboy Church. I loved the expression of country music being declared to God in praise and worship. It was fun to sing, I can only imagine, with a Texas twang on it, you know, with some country twang, yeah? Since it was Cowboy Church, a lot of these guys come in with their their pistols and their revolvers, you know, right on their, their hip. It's not concealed carry. It's just, it's just open carry. There's no children's ministry. My, my son Wyatt, who's almost four, he's just standing in the middle aisle during worship. You know, he's just watching the band, and he's standing in the middle aisle, and then about halfway through, he sees a guy, and he's like, Dad, he's got his pistol, you know. It's like, it's like, this is incredible. You could just bring your gun, right, right in, right into church. You know, but I had the opportunity to worship, even though it was a style that I wasn't accustomed to. And we have the opportunity to worship God no matter our circumstance or the style. It, worship goes much beyond a worship service and a part of our lives. I want to encourage you this morning if you're going to get out of the valley of betrayal, the hurt of betrayal, the temptation for self pity, you've got to worship. You've got to worship. You've got to get your eyes off yourself you got to get your eyes off that person that's hurt you. Get your eyes on the Lord and say, God, I'm going to worship you. So the chapter ends out. There was Hushite, the Arashite, coming to meet him with his robe torn and his dust on his head. He's grieved over what's happening to David. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously. So I will now also be your servant, then you may defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. And do you not have Zadok and Abathar the priest with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house, you shall tell to Zadok and Abathar the priest. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abathar's son, And by them, you shall send them everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, went into the city and Absalom came into Jerusalem. This is gonna turn out to be the key factor. Hushai's counsel is gonna turn things in David's benefit, in David's benefit. So as we close, let's stand in prayer. Let's ask that God would bring healing to our hearts and set us free this morning. Would you stand with me and let's pray together. God, I know that betrayal is very real, but there's many that are hurting because of betrayals that have happened in their life that's been very recent, or it's been years in the past. And God, we come before you. We want to imply your word. We want to fellowship with you, Jesus, in the suffering you went through and the betrayal that you experienced. We see how you responded, Christ. We see how David responded. We want to respond in the same way.